Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene, and tonight we are going to start a journey through another TV series here on Fusion Patrol. Tonight we're going to be looking at the TV series Star Hunter Redux. So, a little background, real briefly. Star Hunter, as it was originally called, premiered in the year 2000 and ran for one season. But then it came back in 2003 in a slightly revised form. And then again in 2018, the first two seasons were taken, re-edited, updated, converted to 16.9, had the special effects redone, and renamed Star Hunter Redux. And according to the creators of the series, the Redux version is closer to their original vision. Um, It's available on Amazon Prime, at least in the United States, for those interested in following along. For this journey, I have a new host with me. That's Kenneth, who will be joining us through the world of Star Hunter Redux. Welcome, Kenneth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Star Hunter Redux, or Star Hunter for that matter, is a show that you know and I don't. So that's the setup for everyone here. Um, Sometimes I know the show better than my co-host. Sometimes we both know. But in this case, I am blissfully ignorant of Star Hunter. So Kenneth is going to be the expert um, on this. I'm going to start, as always, with an episode synopsis for the first episode, The Divinity Cluster. Three million years ago, a thing in space approaches the Earth. Like an egg, it cracks and spews on the planet. This will probably be important later on. In the year 2285, a plot is brewing. A beautiful woman solicits a prominent scientist into a little bathroom sex. At the climax of the act, instead of shouting, Oh yeah, baby, that's the spot, she screams, You will never suppress the divinity cluster. And then she explodes, literally, in a ball of fire, killing the scientist. Well, at least he died on the job. Meanwhile, the spacecraft Transutopia is returning to dock around the moon. Due to the relativistic speeds of its flight, it has been away four years, but only three weeks by the internal timescale. On board Captain Dante Montana, his niece, Percy Montana, Lucretia Scott, and the ship's eccentric anthropomorphic computer interface, Caravaggio. Montana is having a meeting with an old friend, a stereotype of a Scotsman known as Macduff. That meeting consists of punching each other and then drinking the traditional stereotypical Scots greeting. Macduff needs money, and he's dying of inoperable brain cancer. Montana, a bounty hunter, offers him a job on his crew. Lucretia meets with a man named Darius, who is her father, and he gives her an assignment. She must track down a scientist named Eccleston. Eccleston has been researching a series of four alien genes discovered in the human genome. 
And when we say alien, we mean alien, as in extraterrestrial. Eccleston claimed he knew what it was all about, then went on the run. He is on the moon, and they must recover him. Darius appears to be part of a powerful but not necessarily unified cabal known as the Orchard. Darius wants Eccleston alive. Others want him dead. While Montana gets his assignment via Lucretia, Macduff is also accepting a commission to locate Eccleston, and Macduff gets there first. But Eccleston is superhuman and is able to inject Macduff with something that will kill him unless Montana helps Eccleston escape the station. He has them go to Earth, and somehow he's able to get them there at problematically fast speeds. In the ruins of Los Angeles, Eccleston makes a broadcast to everyone, telling of the transcendence of man through the Divinity Cluster, but the Orchard cuts him off before he can finish the message. As the team fight off the Orchard's security forces, Eccleston transforms into something else, but not before curing Macduff of his brain cancer. For double-crossing them, Montana kicks Macduff off his ship. The end. I'm opening remarks to you on on this. All right. Um, I've um, heard you talk about um, pilot episode syndrome. Pilotitis, yes. Yes. <laughs> That's pilotitis. I have some comments on that, too. Yes. Yes. Uh, where uh, there's the simple adventure in the last few minutes mm-hmm. or, or some minor fraction of the episode in which makes if you've watched jeremiah for example you saw it um but it's terrifying this, that somebody knew, yeah. knows something i said <laughs> i've been listening for years um but in this case um the divinity cluster is an episode that make that bears watching again and again and as one watches more of the series and then goes back to this one sees the seeds are all here. Okay. All right. A, a, a little, um, well, I guess that's not really spoilery, but I, I think, I think you've got, you got a good point. I have some notes here about pilotitis. This does not suffer that sort of two stage, uh, setup and adventure. Um, it's, it doesn't actually do a lot to set up what the heck is going on. Right, I mean, there's there's really no explanation as to why Percy calls the Trans Utopia tulip. There's really you'd be hard pressed to realize that Montana is a bounty hunter till halfway through the episode. Um, you know, there, no clue what the relationship between him and Lucretia is. Um, no idea who Rudolfo is. There's a, a ton of things that are kind of tossed at you, and and then there's this mystery of the of the divinity cluster. And I will be completely frank and say that I watched this pilot once a while back. Um, maybe not all of it. And just, just kind of wasn't particularly caught up in it. Uh, when I watched it, I just kind of, eh, you know, it just, and we can talk about that period in time in television science fiction too. Um, I watched it again for the podcast and I took my notes and um, I hadn't done the write up yet. And then there was a, there was a scheduling delay uh, on our, uh, on doing this recording. And so I watched it again this morning and 
I will concur that it makes more sense on second viewing. There are there are throwaway lines that I just kind of completely ignored on first pass through. Yeah. That that if you pick up and I go, all right, we, we'll see. I mean, it was okay. I, I'm not. I don't want to make that sound like. It's so bad I just stopped watching it. Uh, I just it didn't catch me the first time, and I wouldn't exactly say that I'm I'm all in. But after two and a half viewings, uh, I have some I have more interest, and, and not just you know, not because I'm necessarily doing it because of the show, but uh, this show that is not that show. But yeah, so I. I it's a different kind of pilot. It, it definitely has a different structure than the, than the typical pilot. And it does kind of feel like it's going to be part of that transition era where we went from straight episodic shows like Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, to episodic but with arching stories in Babylon 5 to, to where we are now where it's practically most shows are practically just really one story per year with lots of B and C plots kind of thrown in. And it, it kind of feels like we're probably set in a transition period here on this show. So we'll see how it goes. Yes, and, um, and first one minor correction, the, hmm? the ship is the trans utopian. Uh, I found it, it both ways, but okay. Yeah. And um, the, um, People call it the Transutopian uh, Tulip for short. This made more sense in the un excuse me in the original version, where the late where the name on the side of the ship was Tulip. There, there was a shot. There was a shot in this where I could see that the paint was worn down. Yes, and so that you know T and P and U were were visible, and the others were kind of shot. But even in that shot, after it was gone. When I got down to writing my notes, have a note here about it. Where the heck does the L come from? I did think about that. Um, <laughs> I looked it up. I froze the frame. Is it the T? It is the. It is um, the um, the full writing on the side of the ship is Trans Utopia Cruise Ship HHS uh, with the um, for, with the T giving us the. T and Tulip, and then U in Utopia. It's the I in Cruise, just worn down in just the right way. That makes the L. Mm. And then the IP in Ship. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. It's not, you know, there, there's really nothing in dialogue except for the, the scene when Percy is docking the ship and when they call it Transutopian. She also, says, Percy to you, or Tulip to you, not Percy to you. <laughs> yes. but, also, yeah. when you look inside the ship in just the right places where you have the stylized T, uh-huh. uh, look below, you'll see a tulip shape. Tulip. Yes, I I have that in my notes. If if the name of the ship is the Transutopian and it is a cruise line, why the heck in stained glass are, is it tulips everywhere? I I thought that was frankly a mistake on the the designer's part but uh it would be interesting if there's an explanation for it but I, I saw that i saw the tulips all right i did indeed and i thought hmm 
I know how, you know, if it's a cruise liner, which is not mentioned per se in this, and that is something I'm picking up from the little I got out of Wikipedia, um, which is the sum total of research that I did <laughs> for, for the, for the show, not necessarily the sum total of research that I did, but the sum total of research I did for the show. You know, it says it's a converted cruise liner. Raises all sorts of questions. We can get to those uh, later if we if we have the time, right. um, or we can possibly in another episode. Um, and that's what I thought of when I looked at those stained glass windows, the big T, the tulip down right. below, the trans. I was like, so well, that's obviously left over from when it was a cruise ship because why would they bother with stained glass decoration? Uh, in fact, there's a whole bunch of shots early in the ship of the abandoned and empty hallways and you can see that it's you know ornate and decorated in places as you just wouldn't do for a bounty hunter yes ship so indeed i mean there's nice art and little yeah boss reliefs about reliefs yep yep so all that i also saw some a pet peeve of mine which is spaceships that have steam pouring out of pipes and Mm. dank puddles of water uh pooling up in places um which I just have trouble believing that no matter how far in the future you get, that isn't a problem that needs to be fixed right away on a spaceship kind of thing. But it's, it's a style. It's a style that they adopted in that period of time. I, I blame Star Wars for it. Um, not that Star Wars did it, but I don't know if you remember, but when Star Wars came out, one of the big things that everybody was all going ape about was like oh the technology in star wars universe looks lived in it doesn't look all clean and and polished and it's like okay fair enough it did you know it looked dirty it looked like there was worn paint and i'm 100 percent on board with all those but when it gets to the point where it looks like you got a safety hazard because you're not doing your maintenance then that gets a little that's just feels me like the designer went a little too far on Um, that approach but perhaps uh one of the recurring themes in the series is that the ship is a piece of junk. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll I guess we'll we'll see that. I mean, they were obviously, it had quite a bit of battle damage on it, or something damage on it. Yeah. And, yes. uh, and it does have weapons, which is not something you'd expect from the cruise liner, but perhaps that's because of the raiders. And, uh, and they were putting into dock for much needed repairs which apparently they didn't get or didn't get finished they did not get finished we did see shots of little repair bots working so we don't know going into the next episode whether or not they went back to the base and got it all fixed or whether they headed off take it away from the authorities who are probably coming after them for blowing up a couple of their drone ships but uh let's let's just start with uh not that we haven't started already the characters yes. that we have. Uh, Dante Montana is the boss man. And this is this is really terrible. Um, I've got the lists. I've got the names. I've got things. And the only one that has a name associated with it is Dante Montana, uh, Michael Paré, because he's the only one there I recognized. And and I mentioned I tried to do as little research on shows I know as much. And, and so Michael Paré asks... <laughs> Dante Montana. Yes. Great choice. Actor I I never liked. (laughs) (laughs) He was my least favorite part of The Greatest American Hero. And 
and we'll see. We'll see. He um, plays the role of the doer, guilt-ridden father who's been looking for his son for 10 years very well. Okay. And I didn't get that until the literal last 30 seconds of the episode and when he does he, a monologue and says, oh, and then I'm still hunting for my son. I thought, wait, wasn't he killed with the Raiders along with your wife and your brother and sister-in-law? But this again, is, yeah. again, they set up a lot of things here, obviously, that will be important later on, but they really just kind of got a passing mention in this episode, and that's fine. This is a good time to bring up another point, which is that in the remastering, pe um, people changed the opening title sequence. In the original, there was Michael Perret's voiceover in which he explained the entire premise of the series. Now, is that the American version or the Canadian version? This, by the way, is a Canadian show with, with production from the UK and France. Well, and, I mean, it was just the way it was before the before this turned into Star Hunter Redux. Because I read somewhere, it must have been Wikipedia, that whether it was the Canadian version or the American version, I don't remember which, but one had an opening monologue by yes. Lucretia in every episode. Uh, Rudolfo. Okay. But that's, but that's Rudolfo? separate. Okay. Yes. Um, but the, in this study, it's the opening titles with the theme and oh, the okay. cast members. Uh, there was Michael Perret's opening narration for about oh, a minute okay. where he okay. explained he was looking for his son. The Raiders had stolen his son 10 years ago. Okay. When you get to the point of um, Rudolfo, there was a transmission two minutes or something like that 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 from from Rudolfo's based on the moon and sometimes we weren't entirely certain to whom he was talking this was usually comic relief and he was um, talking about work or his love life or something of the sort once in a while he was talking about the mission though that sometimes provided useful exposition but that was often a part cut when broadcast in America because it allowed stations who are taking the syndicated show to put in some more advertisements. More commercials, yeah. But when well, one watches the, the original episodes on DVD, it's all there. Okay. Is Rudolfo, and again, I'm not fishing for spoilers. In fact, I'm intentionally a part of it, but he didn't seem to really be an active part of this show. He's more of a, oh, Rudolfo is, screw him, we need the money, we'll take the commission kind of thing. Yes. Um, he, Rodolfo owns the ship. He owns the ship. Will he be on the ship? Season two. The, in season two. Okay. But here he's kind of the, the boss man in the distance. All right. So let's see. What have I got here? He's a bounty hunter. He works for Rodolfo. We mentioned that. It talks about his sister, his brother, his sister-in-law, all those people killed. He is uh, Percy's uncle, and he has taken on raising her. I don't know that I caught how long that's been. About 10 years. About 10 years. Okay. So since she was about two, actually, three maybe. Um, I'm actually, I was guessing, one time I was trying to guess how old Percy was, because that was always a tricky question in my mind. But um, was Tanya Allen, who played her, was 24 and 25 at the time. Um, she seems to be playing it young, though. Yes. At least in this episode. She plays it young throughout the first season, and dyeing her hair and wearing it a certain way helps. The um, It turns out that this one of, that Philip Jackson, one of the series creators, told me in, through, uh, through an email that Percy is 18. Okay. 
Okay, I would have definitely thought she was, well, who knows in a world like that, but under the age of majority uh, seemed like what they were going for. And, and obviously they don't want to hire an actor under the age of majority because then you get child acting laws, and I'm sure they've got those in Canada as well. Yes. Probably, probably more restrictive than here. Anyway, he has been raising her since her parents were killed at the same time his son went missing. And uh, the only other thing here is I have that his first name is Dante, which I'm wondering if that is a reference to the Divine Comedy. I had not thought of that. Since we're in the Divine the Divinity, Divinity Cluster. cluster. Yeah. It could work. Uh, Percy, we've talked about her. Uh, you just named the... The actor, which I promptly forgot. Tanya uh, Allen. Allen, Allen. I was thinking Smith, and I go, that's not Smith. Can't be that Tanya Allen. Okay. Uh, so now we know. She's 18. She is apparently keeps the ship running. Yes, she does. Um, and uh, I can see she's playing as very bubbly, which is why I took it to be playing it young. This is like supposed to be teenager kind of... Uh, it's not nothing at all like my teenagers, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> TV right. teenager kind of thing. Lucretia, um, yes. oh go ahead. Oh, sorry. oh um, Percy is bubbly in this one. That won't always be the case. Okay. Um, she is right that she has been on the ship too long. Um, we will see in future episodes that she is indeed not a well-adjusted person. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> Lucretia is, mm, what is she? I, I mean, obviously she's there. Yes. Uh, I don't get any impression that, I, oh, I definitely get impression she's not romantically involved with uh, Dante. Uh, there seems to be an element of distrust. There is. There's that I, scene I, in which um, Dante was check, started checking up on her. Did you see that? I did see that scene, and I also noted the line from uh, Caravaggio that uh, it's just like it's not something like it's not any different from what's always been there as if he's done this before right and I think we get the impression that she has been covertly put there by her father that's true as a gatherer okay but I don't know what role she's playing so is it somebody Dante's hired is it someone Rudolfo's hired are they partners are they are they I mean, he's the captain, but they're both bounty hunters. What, what, what is her role? Is she the gunslinger? Rudolfo put her there, and um, she's the, her. Her cover is that she's there to be the gun to be yes, the gunslinger. The gunslinger. Okay. She is I, also she is she's ex-military. She's well okay. suited for that. And Claudette Roach plays Lucretia Scott. Roach. Okay. If it's an interesting note about Claudette Roach is that if you look up her website, she is a dialect coach. She's that's what she does for a living now. I wonder if that is her actual dialect that she's using in this show. She or, is, she is that her is, neutral accent. Yeah, she is British. Okay. Uh, we also have Caravaggio, uh, who appears to be. If I'm taking this right, a holographic computer interface to yes. the ship. It's an, well, it's an interest. It's a fairly relatively common idea. If this is the computer for a cruise ship, 
I kind of wonder why they would think that perhaps the guests would be pleased with a spine hanging out the bottom of I thought about <laughs> the, the that. hologram. <laughs> I thought about that. Look at that and go, you know, he, he doesn't have to look like he's been severed in two <laughs> by but the aliens, you know. He doesn't have to, to look like the Borg queen at the end of First Contact. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just, you know, it's funny when you watch him and you think somebody is probably in the designing room going, this would be cool because he's just part of person and thing like that. And then you and then you kind of backdate it and you go, well, did you think about that in terms of this being a cruise ship? Because <laughs> that is not who I want popping up as a computer when I'm, I, yeah. Well, that's a point I'll take in it. But also, he looks different in season two. Um, in of Redux and in season two of the original version, Star Hunter twenty three hundred, there was a different actor playing the part, and then there was no <laughs> spine hanging out. Okay, so that's new effects that they've that right. they've built up here. Okay, Pardon that. We, we, and, and, and it, I guess we, we do get the idea that the appearance has changed over time. And and you know why not? You know, get an upgrade or or put in a new uh, put in a new skin on the on your computer that that's now a fairly common concept, but yes. um, it was just, I look at that going, all right, that's odd, but all right. All right. And of course he's kind of seems a little eccentric and uh, that's sarcastic, you know, fairly typical of a computer uh, interface uh, in, in television land. Also, I did notice that, uh, Dante called him Mr. C at one point, which did give me horrifying, horrifying flashbacks to Greatest American Hero. Mr. H. <laughs> Mr. H, when they still couldn't decide if he was Hinkley or Hanley. That's right. <laughs> I remember those days. Ah, yes. Although usually people call him... And... I know. Usually people call him Carr. Oh, the car. Okay, that makes sense. We also have in this, I'm guessing either not... A weekly recurring character, but perhaps a somewhat recurring character. Don't need to tell me. Macduff, I have to say, the single most stereotypical Scotsman I have seen in a very, very long time. You will not see him again, mercifully. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering, in this universe, apart from the big space egg that, that rained down on our parade earlier in our mankind's history... Are are aliens a thing? Because I'm kind of wondering if those eyebrows are like some sort uh, of gestaltish alien being. That... I noticed those Scottish eyebrows. Uh, yes. <laughs> he looks like a cartoon. And I, I think it's one of the Bugs Bunny cartoons where they yeah. had a Scotsman <laughs> that wasn't Yosemite Sam in a kilt. But, you know. <laughs> the only aliens in this series are the aliens who gave us the Divinity Cluster. Okay. So that is that is our thing. All right. Um, European versus American television standards. There seem to be an awful lot of exposed breasts in this program. Is that added on for Redux? That was there uh, originally. Really? Because that scene, particularly in the bar, when Dante's having his punching drinking match and the stripper is behind him, that so looks like she's on green screen. It does. I, I also him. noticed that they weren't looking. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess you, I guess you hang out too long in CD bars like that. No, I think that's the whole point, isn't it? Everybody's right. supposed to be not even paying any attention to exactly. the fact that the, that the girl is in there. 
Um, but um, uh, but this is but that's not it. But what you're talking about is not an issue in most episodes. In fact, it only comes up in one more. Okay. Do you did they did they couldn't possibly have aired it that way here in the U.S. It, there it must have been had to be some careful editing in some scenes. Yes. Because I know that they used to many many years ago. Uh, I remember an interview with with Roger Moore where he was talking about how they used to do this um, when they were making things in Europe, that they would uh, shoot a scene and then they would stop. And when they liked it, then they would stop and say, now we're shooting the European version. And they'd like rip the tops off the the girls and they'd shoot it again uh, because they would have one for the puritanical American market, which is where they got their money from. And then... They would have the one they wanted to make for the European market. And I, I felt like this, and I thought, well, you know, it's on Amazon Prime now. It doesn't matter. It's it's streaming, no. and they can do what they want. And this, and it's, I mean, it's not it's not gratuitous and too too terribly gratuitous in any way, shape, or form. It's just, no. it just, if I'd been watching TV in 2000, I just guarantee I would have been blown away if that had been broadcast over the airways. I, I just would be like, Somebody lost their job today at the studio for that because, well, you know how we are. Yes. You can kill all the people you want with as much blood and gore and violence and spattered innards and whatnot, but breasts? No! That's just wrong. I can't have that now. <sighs> yeah. It's a, it is an interesting double standard. Unless, of course, it's a, a National Geographic special. Yeah. Now, the, the um, just while we're on the subject of the women's breasts, because, well, we've got them out, so we might as well finish that thought. Is there supposed to be an implication or is it a metaphor or is it just not that that it it seems like Eccleston is, let's say, passing on his genetic material to all the women who seem to be part of his uh, <clears throat> harem uh, harem. Yes, I because yes. you know, they've obviously got the, the injections, and so uh, presumably he injected them with something because he kind of offers it to to uh, Lucretia as well. But at the same time, they did go to a lot of effort to make sure you realize that he is putting it to all of them. Yes, and which didn't do him any good since they all died. Apparently not. <clears throat> and uh, and we'll we'll kind of get back to to what what had happened to them uh, as I I ponder along here. So the MacGuffin is the divinity cluster. Yes. Four genes that we only discovered three years ago, despite the fact that for decades we've known what every gene in a human genome was. It gets, more, it gets more complicated than that. Okay. Uh, oh. as, we, as we go into the series, we learn that people were doing research into this 20 years ago. Okay, good, because I don't, I don't buy for a second that if they had it, you know, even if they don't know what they are, they couldn't have been hidden genes unless they materialized three years ago. Maybe they were un, you know, function unknown or whatnot. But it just, it just doesn't make any sense that if they've documented the whole genome, that they didn't see them there. So, all right, we'll we'll get to that. We'll try not to try not to get too far ahead of ourselves on it. But I that did question Eccleston obviously thinks, and we are presented with a certain amount of evidence. That would indicate that it is some sort of transformative gene. He thinks you become a god. 
when, That's what he and said. he does indeed vaporize out in some way. He does exhibit superhuman powers prior to doing that. Uh, he heals Macduff. He moves at super speed. He, he apparently can floats. Floats, yeah. He levitates. He he has green eyes. Makes ships travel faster than sense says that they can. So I mean, there, there's something to it. There's clearly something going on there. Uh, it's not. It's not all. A, it's not all a hoax. So that has been set up, and there appears to be an organization. There is an organization known as Orchard that knows something about this is trying to suppress the knowledge of this is trying to eliminate the knowledge to it. It, it, and I, and yes. I, I obviously there's differing opinions there. Uh, Darius wants, well, actually, I don't know what Darius wants. This is the, this is the weird part. Um, and, and I don't want you to tell me exactly unless it's okay. in this episode, but, but Darius wants to recapture Eccleston. Darius also wants to stop Eccleston from broadcasting his information. That's true. At the same time, he seems to put it to the orchard. We have to decide whether we're going to continue to suppress this or we're going to reveal the information. And I got the impression that the woman who was opposed to him. Paquette. Was very clearly saying, no, we are not going to reveal this information. And that made it feel like Darius was on the opposite side of that argument. He was. So he wants to reveal the information. So why did he stop the transmission? He wanted to, he wanted to reveal the information a certain way. Um, Eccleston okay. was rogue. Um, he was okay. unstable. Well, he'd, he'd been injected with, with yeah. something that apparently was triggering his, his divine instincts. I noticed that the logo for Orchard is a tree. Yes. And it, it produced a kind of interesting question in my mind. Interesting to me. Who knows? The logo is a tree. There is the tree of life. I mean, that's, a, that's about as on-the-nose metaphor as you can, as you can yes. get. But also, an orchard is not a tree. An orchard is a place to harvest things, to grow and harvest things. And I'm wondering if the name is more meaningful than their logo, uh, in that respect. Also, they claim to be trying to save humanity. That was, that was very clearly put out in this episode. We're trying to save humanity, but no idea of what it is that they're trying to save them from. So part of the mystery that I hope will be resolved before we get to the end of this, uh, end of this story. Uh, you'll get your answer. If you, as you keep watching episodes, um, you will learn more and more about the orchard um at one point dante asks eccleston what it is what's the secret and eccleston is like we all know it everybody we've always known it except we don't except that nobody does because we don't even know what it's in reference to except for the divinity we've all we've all known about these genes and i it's like ah. and why didn't he tell dante at that moment you know, this is, it's, a good it's question. like the, the more people who know, the harder it is to suppress the information. You know, it's one of those things where if you, if you lay your whole gambit down on getting to a TV station and broadcasting your transcendence into being a God, you have two things you have to worry about. One, they cut the thing off. And two, they run a banner underneath it that says, stay tuned for the movie we're making. This <laughs> is a preview. 
and everyone believes that it's a, you know, it's a special effects and it's it's hokum. So, I, I, Eccleston may have been a genius, but he was not a media mogul. Uh, no, <laughs> and he, he was also unstable. Yeah, he also mentions that Darius is in danger, which kind of makes it sound like he is a little more allied with him than we might think. That that he has some uh, let's let's use loyalty, but affinity for Darius. Uh, perhaps that's why Darius is not in favor of killing him. Yes. Um, Darius is an interesting character to watch. He's a recurring character in the first half or so of the first season. Okay. He's of all the members of the orchard. He's the most sympathetic. He is one of the most sympathetic, but he's <laughs> not entirely so. Okay. Well, they, they kind of set that up. He seems to be the estranged father who doesn't have time for his daughter, although she clearly wants to have some connection with him very much so and um so he he's not coming off great uh at this point but i guess we'll see you know they sometimes have the sympathetic bad guy or maybe the guy who halfway through is a bad guy turns good or, or whatever it happens to be but he he clearly seems to be on that path of being a jerk to his daughter and um, but, but at the same time, sort of potentially sympathetic, uh, it, it was hard to tell. It, it was, it was hard to tell in the episode, but again, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm taking it as the pilot right. and I'm taking it as we've put the pieces on the board and, and I don't, I don't need that answer uh, at this time. All right. New Los Angeles. How, how did you like New Los Angeles? Thought that was kind of strange earthquake damage. You know, um, center section, big empty ring around it, then a few more buildings, then a big empty ring around it. it looked more like a bomb strike or something. Well, the setup, yeah, the setup was that people never bothered to rebuild the old city. So they did rebuild the center, or that that just they didn't just, collapse. They just rebuilt uh, bits, the, a new city next to the ruins of the old. Also, um, perhaps a way of explaining this is that um, in the future, um, the Earth is a wasteland. It's clearly ugly. Yes. From the space shots. Yes, it is. Except for one toward the end where it looks nice and blue coming out, out, out the window. But the, there are, the population of the Earth is just a few million people. Okay. They've all moved off. To died. the moon, yep. they moved off to Mars. They moved off to terraformed moons um, throughout the solar system, especially around Saturn and Jupiter. Got plenty of moons to work with out there. Okay. Then the question is, does that mean that Los Angeles is the broadcast hub to everywhere, all over Earth, the moon? Clearly the they were hearing it on the moon. Or, or was it, you know, he went back to Earth for a reason, I presume. Symbolism, of, I guess. You could have broadcast from anywhere. Yeah. that's That was my thought, unless there was something special about the Los Angeles um, thing. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it, it played a relatively minor part in the, in the episode, except in terms of just giving us some special effects. It could have been, you know, it could have said anywhere. They didn't, they didn't even need to say that the city was destroyed. 
right? I mean, there was just, right. I, I don't know that there was, that maybe that's a setup for something later on, but. Throughout the series, there will be references to Earth. Okay. And that there are a few million people living on it and they're trying to restore it. Okay. I mean, I, I can, I can take, all right, I'll go there. I'll go there now because the thought is on it. One of the, right, there's, there's common themes that come back in science fiction or in that, that resonate with people. And one of the reasons mm. that probably this did not resonate with me is the, the stories of mankind was touched by something greater and settle on the course don't resonate with me. Um, just in the same way that, you know, when somebody says, oh, the pyramids are so amazing, obviously aliens came down and helped us because, you know, you flip that on its head and you say, because mankind's so stupid or worse, it's it's a, kind of a holdover of colonialism. And it's like, oh, well, those primitive barbarians living in Mesoamerica could never have done this when we couldn't do it back in back in jolly old England or, you know. But but those themes come up in these things that kind of, in that way, kind of denigrate mankind. They look at it and they say, well, you know, mankind's not good enough to do this kind of stuff. Well, yes, we are. We did. We did do that. And another one is the one that says mankind isn't an animal or he's not an ordinary animal. He is, he is above and beyond all the other beasts and fowl and birds and what of the world because he has been touched by something. Let's use the word divine because they use the word divine. And that story doesn't resonate with me either. I, I think that's a kind of hubris on the, on humanity's part. But if you take that storyline, then we can look at things like 2001, uh, where, you know, it's the next it's the next step in human evolution that's been pushed upon us by, by aliens. And okay. You know, earth is destroyed. Here's one. How about he's going in his godlike powers will someday fix it. Just like the star child does in 2001, at least in the book. Um, you know, it, it could be, that could be the symbolic return to earth on, on our, but it, it's like I, I kind of, it, in a way, it feels like a cop out for me. So it's just not kind of this type story I, I gravitate to in a in a science fiction environment, and that may be one of my kind of just intrinsic biases. I will I will step aside and say it can be done in a way that that I think is fascinating, and I I'll give you a perfect example is Babylon Five, right? The Vorlons, Vorlons. went and they fixed humans, not for their own purposes. I mean, they were for their own, not, not for their own purposes. You know, they made the telepaths so that they would be weapons. Against the shadows. Against the shadows. They're, uh, you know, that, that one kind of has this sort of, no, they just took humans. Humans were humans. And then we said, we need some of them to have this power. It's, it's just kind of a different attitude to it. And, and, and I like it in that way. But when, when you plot back 3 million years and you're, influencing whatever. hominids at that point hominids right which was australopithecus at about i, that I did i did time. check the i did check the dates it's pre-australopithecus uh australopithecus had tools all the way back to 3.39 million so we're talking uh, about th th three aren't we 
it's it's definitely you know before Homo habilis, which was yes. the first one that was thought to be a tool user. You know how those go. You name them, and you go, oh yeah, they they had yeah. tools. They're they're handyman, and then you find out Australopithecus had them too, and and quite a long time before Homo yes. sapiens. There is a statement that Darius makes to Lucretia that he says we think these aliens bumped human evolution twice. I'll put it to you because I have no clue. I thought about it at great length. What would you think would be the two bumps in human evolution? I haven't found them. I guess Darius was just making that up. He had no idea. You, you, you kind of wonder if there, if, if, if the, the author, let's say, had something like, and I'm making this up, the Renaissance, where suddenly people got a bit smarter or something, that it was like, here's a bump. Or when man got fire or something. There has to be something that makes them, you know, it, it seemed awfully specific. We think they did two bumps over the history of mankind. And I'm just curious if, well, I, I doubt they'll ever reveal it, but I'm just curious as no, to whether or not you had any speculation We don't, we don't about get it. it revealed what there are some evolutionary leaps. Um, could be references to those. Um, the writer of the episode was Nilu Giron, by the way. I, could not take a guess as to the the uh, origin of that name. I have never heard either one of those surname or given name in my life. I saw that name come up on the on the thing. I was like, "That's that is completely new to me." I almost thought it was a pen name. It's not. <laughs> um, I've seen his picture, and um, I saw I've seen video of him on YouTube, one of those behind the scenes of the making of Star Hunter Redux. And there he was. He's an older man. He's bald. Seems to be nice. All writers are nice. He's yes. a Harlan Ellison. But yeah. except, except for Ellison, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe Niven and Purnell. I don't know. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the, the nature of space travel in this universe. They talk about the curve. I assume they're talking about the relativist relativistic curve that is the faster you get towards the speed of light uh you get a time dilation effect somewhat um, but um i i got the impression that when dante was talking to um to rodolfo um over the video com that was that uh, rodolfo at the beginning yes that okay. um that he was that dante was just making an excuse that um um, that that he actually hadn't been out there for months, for years. He'd just been tooling around sublight because they, they they travel sublight speed around the solar system. Well, you can you get relativistic speeds as you approach the speed of yes. light. But and, and but the, fa- and the the fastest theoretical speed they have is hyperspace, which is what. Uh, Eccleston makes the tulip do when from from the moon to the earth. Well, I had a question about that. So that and that was my question basically is is hyperspace a thing in this universe it that is. ships can do but the tulip cannot and so therefore they're surprised or 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 what? I mean, I bless bless them for giving me numbers. I love when they give I love when science fiction programs give numbers because um, you know, even if they're false, when, when UFO used to all the time 
tell how long something was at, how many souls it was traveling at, how many, I remember that. you know, and uh, working on the assumption that she wasn't lying or at least that it was plausible, right? Okay. Maybe they really weren't out there for four years. Maybe, or maybe they were out there for four years tooling around, but you know, it clearly was plausible that they could have been out for three weeks and back after four years. And, and, you know, I hated physics when I was in it university. I love science. I hated physics. I hated doing the math. And I always was a software engineer. And I thought, this is a thing I can do. And But, you know, some nerds always got there first. There are at least three relativistic speed calculators on the Internet that you can go out. And with a little poking around, you can figure out how fast you have to be traveling to do a four years to three week <laughs> transit. Right. And the answer is 0.9998 of the speed of light would get you approximately that time dilation effect. Um, but in the case of the transutopian, that would require a reactor that's fully functional, and this one isn't. Yeah, we don't know that yet, but and it clearly has engines of some kind, but no. yeah. Um, but to answer your question about hyperspace, in this universe, hyperspace is a function of the divinity cluster. Okay, so it's not something that their ships normally do. No. So in reality, Percy is just talking out of her her rear end there when she said we did hyperspace. She no, doesn't they, actually they, know. They she actually know. did. They they actually did. She, and that, and that was and she was surprised to see it. Do you think they got data that said that, or is it just they, the fact that it took... They got data because this is how fast it took them to go so, from point A to point B. At the speed of light from the moon to the Earth is only 1.3 seconds. So they went, still went considerably less speed than than light. But anyway, it, it was just... I was looking at that going, eh, I, I, I'd like to know more about this, but the probably the more numbers they give the worse it will get because mm -hmm. I, I know darn good and well they didn't look up the relativistic speed calculator on the internet. No. If they had, they would have said, you know, something more realistic, like it's been two and a half, three or four months for us. And then, you know, all of it doable. In theory, it's all doable up to nearly the speed of light. But to get that, that particular crush that they gave, it was, it was really pushing it. Um, Oh, to pick up on a point you made earlier about alien influences, uh, this, I'll just, I won't spoil too much, but I'll just tell you this. Uh, we'll see Eccleston again. Okay. In the last episode of the first season. Okay. And the first and last episodes of the first season serve as bookends with Eccleston talking about the the, the divinity cluster. And there or, there will be some revelations about the actual nature of the, the divinity cluster at the end of the first season. Okay, fair enough. Un unfortunately, sometimes when I get a an episode and you know this this not I want to say there's not a lot going on in the plot here. It's it's more about setting things up. I think for the most part. So then it kind of comes off sounding like I'm trying to pick, and I'm not really trying to pick. I'm just looking at things that that, that catch my eye and. Um, you know, good, 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 bad, and indifferent. I did notice, like on the second time through, I noticed that there was a throwaway line about the pursuing Earth ships being robotic. Yes. 
first time I watched that, I said, well, that's interesting. We've got Earth's police and they just blew them up. Going to be ramifications? I mean, even blowing up our robotic ships, but... um, We never hear about it again. Okay, fair enough. I also am going to ask the nature of the trans-utopia, which is not designed for atmospheric flight and yet somehow manages to do so. True. And then somehow Dante and Macduff managed to get down to Los Angeles without benefit of a shuttle. Did they, did they parachute? Uh, Cause it didn't good... look like the trans utopia landed. It looked no. more hovery. That was an interesting little um, convenience point. Wasn't it? Yeah. And so the two girls, how did they get there almost instantaneously? Are they also capable of hyperspacing? Was that, because remember, he's he's meeting up with him, and then he's just to go, basically, it sounds like he's going out to get captured by Macduff intentionally. And he says, well, you know, head on out. And they they disappear in the next, literally the next scene. They are at the station going, well, we killed them all. They're all dead, so. Again, we don't, know. we don't know. It, it's like that great question from Star Trek Three: How did Uhura get to Vulcan? Uh, yeah, yeah, moon shuttle. Moonshot, definitely. Moon I don't know. Man, yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> but um, Eccleston was injecting them, and maybe they had a shuttlecraft and they could go hyperspace. You'd think they would have had a little better odds against those mm-hmm. uh, guards then. Mm-hmm. But anyway. All right. Um, I, I don't know that I want to talk about Macduff, but I, I do want to ask did you, and it, you know, all this stuff. It's just like the cuts where they go from the girls to the ship or from the moon to the earth. This could be part of the re-editing that that changes the logic and or you know just to tighten it up and they miss something that that was going. In the case of Macduff, the way I see it and I kind of watched it through a little more closely on the second go. Uh Lucretia is given the assignment to find Eccleston. Yes. Independently of that, Macduff Duff is given an assignment to find Eccleston. Lucretia tells Dante, neither of them have ever told Macduff. Macduff is off giving the city tour to his goddaughter, and he's also hunting Eccleston, and he happens to find him first. I don't see that as double dealing or double dipping on the payroll. That that didn't strike me as that way at all, but Dante took it that way. Yes, he did. As if he was backstabbing him, and I didn't I didn't see that at all. Macduff didn't even know he was looking for Eccleston. No, he didn't. I didn't see Dante's point either. It, it just seemed like here's a good excuse to get rid of him, and uh, which you know I'm 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 on board with that. I don't know if I could take. I have just enough Scottish blood in my ancestry that I don't know if I can take yet another Scotsman who has to say hello in a bar by punching you up every time and then drinking over the blood. It's like, ah, laddie, lousy. Macduff is indeed a stereotype. <laughs> oh, he was wearing a tam, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I, I didn't look at his legs to see if he was wearing a kilt, but he was definitely wearing a tam, and, and he had those had to be fake Scottish eyebrows. I mean, I guess I could look up the guy's IMDb picture and see if he really has those. I mean, some people do, but somebody must have, in the history of Scotland, had those eyebrows <laughs> or he wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but, to, but to get to your point about re-editing, 
Uh, let me check episode links here. Be, I figured out when I did the math that people cut over three minutes from the original episode. Okay. Actually, closer to four um, by the time they extended the closing credits. Is that including the cuts of Rodolfo at the beginning? Yes. And that's, so. where, that's where most of the cut is. Most most of the cuts are. The... But there was, and, and so people did do quiz, do some quicker cuts to get down to 44 minutes and eight seconds. Well, and, and, you know, this is not unprecedented. There is, um, I think it's, uh, enlightenment, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Who episode, which, you know, when it originally aired, it was four half hour, 28 minutes or whatever it was at the BBC. And when they when they released it on DVD the first or second or third time, the original director went in and made an entirely alternate version as, mm. as a movie length without the cliffhangers and whatnot. And, you know, with a hindsight of 20 plus years of changes in the way people watch and consume television and brought it up to almost to modern pacing and standards. And they can do that just entirely with editing um, because there's a lot of things that, that they don't bother me. They, they've never bothered me that if you want to have some time for the story to grow or the characters to grow or for them to sit and talk for a little bit about this, that, and the other, even if it's got nothing at all to do with the story, I'm, I'm kind of fine with that in most cases, unless, you know, unless the story is resolved too quickly or makes no sense in favor of having a scene where they spend five minutes taking tea and talking about you know fall weather or something i mean it, there's a balance to be made there but you know there's there's a lot of stuff that can go you know quicker cuts faster faster scene exits you know you don't need to see the guy walk all the way out the door and the door to close on him you can get him heading towards the door and stop it and the audience will get it so um, you, you could you could trim quite a lot out of out of most shows uh, and and well, maybe maybe not most modern shows, which are pretty time constrained. But uh, but if they got rid of those opening monologues, and you know, are the credits shorter? The credits are the opening credits are the same length. They are the same length. Okay. Um, you know, you, there's there's places that there's places you can go. They just had a voiceover for Montana then on the originals over the same same length credits. Are yeah, I you know I I'm. <sighs> cautiously looking forward to the next episode um i again i'm i've got that dual i've got that dual mindset if i had watched this episode uh once i probably would not have come back to it as as i had mentioned earlier and having watched it twice i'm it probably wouldn't you know with the 10 other shows that i'm currently watching you know kind of what am i going am i going to watch columbo tonight or am i going to watch star trek voyager tonight or whatever it, it it might get into the rotation obviously for the podcast it 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 will so um so i don't know you know maybe it'll take a few more episodes to to really drag me in my ex- right now just on my own i'm going through and watching the original of, of an episode and then watching the redux version of, of an episode and taking notes and i'm this is at least the seventh or eighth time I've gone through the series. The one I do have, uh, we'll just, I will tell you this, this there are no spoilers in this. Uh, the, in the, in the early episodes, 
uh, it can't the um, produce the creators and writers were setting up the pieces mm-hmm. right around episode, and then they started slowly tying episodes into each other with little references to previous episodes. Right around the middle of the first season, right, episode 12, 13, thereabouts, they really started ratcheting up the action and okay. really tying everything, tying all but a couple episodes into the great thread of the ser- of of the first ser- of the first season. Okay, well, I guess we will we will see where it goes. Um, I don't know that I have anything else on this particular episode. Uh, I suspected I've got a couple notes I didn't hit, but I'll that there were probably more world building I'll come back to anyway later on. And I will put you on the spot right now because that's just the kind of guy I am. Uh, you mentioned you're doing a blog on this. I know that you're doing a rewatch and you're writing up information about the show and you're doing, I think, comparisons between the old and the new. Um, I'm not going to read that. That's not me being harsh. That's just me not being, you I know, understand. wanting to be spoilery. Um, but uh, give it a plug. Where Where is your... Uh, Where's your blog? My the name of the thank you. The name of the blog is Sundry Thoughts. It's at um, WordPress. And given that I renamed it after I after given that I renamed the blog after I started it, it's um, neatnick two thousand nine dot wordpress dot com. Neatnick two thousand nine at wordpress dot com, and that's neatnick n e a t n i k k two thousand nine all one word. dot wordpress.com so i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if somebody wants to go check that out in ahead or along with the writing uh, along with the episodes of the podcast do you have anything else you want to hit before we end our first episode um no it's a good discussion and the name of the next episode is trust trust okay that's a nice, easy one to remember. It's a nice character piece on um, our friend Percy Montana. That's kind of what I thought from the the previews are in the episodes on Amazon Prime. I saw that and I said, this does not look like a a mythos show, as they would have said on... It looked like it was a complete change of pace. So, All right. Yes. Kenneth, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.